Hello and welcome to Star Wars, Episode 2, Attack of the Clones. There is unrest in the Galactic Senate. Several thousand solar systems have declared their intention to leave the Republic. This separatist movement, under the leadership of the mysterious Count Dooku, has made it difficult for the limited number of Jedi Knights to maintain peace and order in the galaxy. Senator Amidala. Wait, no, no, stop the music. Wrong script. Sorry. Okay, let's try that again. Hello and welcome to A History of the United States. Episode 44. The Anglo-Dutch Wars. Part 2. Attack of the Spices. Remember that this is a listener-supported podcast. If you want to support the show, then please consider signing up for membership. Just go to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and click on the PayPal subscription button. If you are listening to this episode, I'll assume you've listened to the 43 before it. You've probably got a pretty good idea by now of how my mind works, and how I'm continually going off on tangents, which add bits to the story. At least, that's what I claim they do. Today, we're going to begin with a bigger tangent than normal. You see, as we advance in the story, I want to do a recap at the end of each century to explore what's going on in global history. Context is everything. How does our podcast fit into the wider narrative? But the problem for us right now is that I haven't had a chance to do that yet. So I'm going to give a fair bit of context so that you can understand what is really going on when the English seized New York at the end of the last episode. You see, if we are going to understand what is happening in New York, then I really need to get into the history of Indonesia. Everything is connected. How I'm going to introduce this tangent is with a passage from A History of the World by Andrew Marr. Quote, The coming British world domination was not yet obvious. The rise of the British as a naval and trading power is now so firmly part of world history that it may come as a shock to find that in the most lucrative contest of all, they were soundly beaten by the Dutch. Very broadly, the story of European mercantile expansion can be divided into three phases. First, from the late 1400s came the Portuguese, whose ships explored the African coast. Then, discovering that the Cape could be reached by veering off far west into the Atlantic, allowing the winds to carry them round, they got to India and the Far East. The Portuguese operated as violently monopolistic traders rather than as empire builders, setting up fortifications to protect their sea routes and repelling all rivals. The Spanish were the next to get in on the act, but did not really try to oust the Portuguese from their routes, focusing instead on the Americas. The second phase saw two more northerly nations, the English and the Dutch, joined the adventure. To begin with, they were no more consciously imperialist than the Portuguese, 
also been driven by merchants' hopes of profits. Europe had long had a near-desperate desire for the spices that grew only in the East. The most delicious, and, it was thought, healthful of these were to be found in the Spice Islands, wedged in the dangerous seas between Borneo and New Guinea. Nutmeg, cloves, mace, pepper, and cinnamon had been bought from the islanders there by Muslim seafarers, then taken to India, thence through the Islamic world to Constantinople, and finally through Venice to Europe. A profit was made at each stage, so that the aromatic nuts and seeds were hugely expensive luxuries by the time they reached Paris or London. Yet, before the advent of refrigeration, in an age of rank meat and dull eating, the appetite for them was as insatiable as it was for fur. Most spices were also thought to offer protection against illness. Nutmeg was supposed to cure syphilis, and even plague. Meanwhile, Portuguese seamanship had found a shorter way. Ships from Europe could now get direct access to the spices. The losers were the Arabs and Indian traders, suddenly and brutally cut out of the chain. The next losers would be the Portuguese themselves, confronted by better-built ships and bolder adventurers, this time from the lowlands of northern Europe, in particular the Dutch. Rival Europeans tried to batter their way through the Arctic ice or penetrate the Canadian wilderness, still looking for a shorter way to the aromatic islands. In London, they tried to mimic the Dutch by forming their own East India Company, but the British discovered, not for the last time, that it is hard to be second into a new market. The Dutch were dug in, determined and utterly ruthless. The Dutch businessmen realised that to repel rivals, they would need forts, protected warehouses, secure anchorages, and a permanent arrangement with the local rulers whose produce they were after. This meant that the Dutch, even though they were God-fearing Republicans, were turning themselves into imperialists. The third phase had arrived. Indonesia became their Far Eastern base, with a new Dutch capital, Batavia. End quote. Okay, so we have a bit of context. The Dutch were the dominant force in the Spice Islands, and the English were late to the party. They did, however, manage to become friendly with the inhabitants of the island of Run. Run is an island, about 2,000 kilometres or 1,200 miles east of Java in Indonesia. It is 3 kilometres in length and 1 kilometre in width, and now only appears on specialised maps. Its importance 400 years ago was due to nutmeg, and the large supply of nutmeg on the island. These spices were highly desired in Europe, and it was possible to make ridiculous profits. And when I say ridiculous, I mean ridiculous. The quantity of nutmeg which could be purchased for one penny on run could be sold in London for 50 shillings. That is something in the region of a 60,000% markup. That's why the Dutch and English were so desperate to have a piece of the spice trade, and why they were both so eager to force the other out. 
The English, as I've said, were late when arriving in the East Indies around 1602, almost a decade behind the Dutch. The Dutch were not happy with the English presence there, but they couldn't abide by the English having run. Run was a group of one of ten islands known as the Brander Islands, and they were where almost all the nutmeg in the world grew. This is why the Dutch, in 1616, decided to launch an attack to take it. The English would not give up, and so they launched a defence. The siege of Run lasted four years until 1620, when the English commander was killed, and the island finally fell to the Dutch. It was an incident the English would not forgive the Dutch for. They were on friendly terms back in Europe, and so it wasn't much of an issue, but following the execution of Charles I and the rise of the English Commonwealth, it was a grievance. It turned out that the English had not forgotten. The return of Run was one of the terms of the Treaty of Westminster in 1654, which brought to a close the First Anglo-Dutch War. On the face of it, this looks like the matter was closed, but as I'm sure you've already guessed, it wasn't. The Treaty of Westminster didn't really do anything to solve the issues between the English and the Dutch. Just as tensions continued in Europe resulting in the 1660 Navigation Act, and as they continued in North America, leading to the English invasion of New Netherland, they also didn't go away in the East Indies. The Dutch wouldn't give up run. They were supposed to, and the English tried on several occasions to take back run as per the terms in the treaty, but the Dutch wouldn't give it. Run was considered highly important, and they wouldn't let the English traders back on the island. These issues in all three theatres led to a declaration of war in 1665, beginning the Second Anglo-Dutch War. The Dutch had learnt their lessons from the First War. Their ships were outmatched by the English, and they set upon rectifying that position. They began construction of a new navy almost as soon as the First War ended, and it was more than a match for the English fleet. The English suffered defeat after defeat in the waters of the English Channel and the North Sea. The English war effort was then made more difficult by domestic issues. It suffered an outbreak of bubonic plague and then the Great Fire of London. It seemed like the war was quite simple, the Dutch would win, and that would be the end of it. But I'm afraid it isn't. You have to adapt to the political realities of the situation, and international political realities are never simple. Okay, step back for just a moment, and look at Europe in your mind. You have England and the Dutch fighting each other as neighbours, but look at the bigger picture. The United Provinces of the Netherlands had three other big neighbours, and their actions always had to be taken into account. These were the French, the Germanic Principalities, and the Spanish. The war at sea wasn't going well for them, so the English sought to launch a land war. They enlisted Munster as an ally to invade. At the same time, the English approached Spain. It must be remembered that the Spanish were still in the region, in the Spanish Netherlands, present-day Belgium. On the face of it, this looked like a good idea. 
getting allies together to fight the Dutch seems sensible. However, this provoked a reaction from France. France was, at the time, ruled by a man with great ambition. Louis XIV, the Sun King. He was in his late twenties and really wanted to conquer the Spanish Netherlands. He was alarmed at the prospect of a Spanish land invasion and so joined the war on the side of the Dutch. Now, this seems like a good thing for the Dutch. Who doesn't want a strong ally? Well, the Dutch. The Dutch were very proud of their independence. They just spent the better part of a century fighting the Spanish for it. The last thing they wanted was to win a war only because of the French. If the French became the dominant power in the region, the Dutch would be relegated to the position of a French vassal. The English didn't want that either, and so the war continued for a few years, but with the intention of returning to a position which didn't really change anything. It's not really necessary for me to go into the details of the various naval battles fought off the Dutch coast, because I'm sure you don't care, and I certainly don't, so let's just skip to the conclusion of all this, as it fought itself out. The Dutch won the war, but they won it in order to mostly revert to the status quo with England. I say mostly because the Dutch did win the war, and so they were in control for exactly how events played out. For instance, the Navigation Acts were altered to give special trade rights to the Dutch, they would be able to sail English goods up the Rhine, for example. However, what mostly concerns us is what the situation was with the colonies. Here was how the situation looked to the Dutch in 1667. The East Indies were the centre of the spice trade, and they were highly profitable. Again, remember the 60,000% markup on nutmeg. It was the heart and soul of their maritime empire. In contrast, New Netherland had been a bit of a disaster. The profits made by the fur trade had not justified the cost of setting up the settlement. It was losing money. They had tried to transform it into an agricultural base, but the Dutch had a very small rural population. There was no land-hungry populace, and no persecuted religious minority. It wasn't working. Therefore, it was decided that in the peace treaty, they would simply keep the status quo. The English would be granted New Netherland, henceforth known as New York, which they, in practice, already controlled. And, in exchange, the Dutch would be granted the valuable spice island of Run, which they, in practice, already controlled. At the time, it was seen as a good deal. How times change. If, at the next social gathering of your friends, you drop the knowledge that the Dutch traded in New York to the English in exchange for an island nobody's heard of in the middle of Indonesia, well, they probably won't care, if we're being honest. But if they are also history lovers, they will be really shocked and surprised. It's one of those bits of historical trivia that on the surface doesn't make a lick of sense, even though it does given the historical context, which is why we spent a whole episode talking about Indonesia, when all I really needed to say was that after the English invaded New Netherland, the Dutch were so dissatisfied with the project that they were happy to trade New Netherland for a spice island. 
But where would the fun have been in that? If you've enjoyed today's unusual, and some would say unnecessary, episode, then why not check us out online? You can like the show on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the history of podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at History Jamie. You can send me an email, the history of podcast at gmail.com. And if you are interested in signing up for membership, then just head over to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and click on the PayPal subscription button. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Thank you.